Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I'll go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for this place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the crying of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh and to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you ought to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord of our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, 
he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters, and so you will plunder the Egyptians. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored, like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the null and pour it into the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave humans their mouths? Who made them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will speak, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord, please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take the staff in your hands so you can perform the signs with it. Hey, thanks, Eagles. That's a big reading. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jack. If I haven't met you before, one of the pastors here at TCU. Uh, as Jonathan said at the start, we're um, in our second week looking at the book of Exodus together. Is this one one big service at ten a.m.? Um, now I don't I don't I don't have any any kids, um, but but I find it I find it amazing sometimes how parents just kind of seem to know when and how to respond to the cries of their children. It just kind of it amazes me sometimes and. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like some parents have kind of this superpower to just recognise what kind of, of cry they are hearing from their child and how they need to respond. Um, it's like, you know, those times when you're in a lounge room, maybe at a party or something with a group of people and, and the kids are all playing outside 
and you hear one of those kids start crying and it's really loud and, and it sounds like they're really in need. And you kind of, I know like for me, it's a bit like, like oh, mayday, mayday, there's a child crying, everyone drop everything, you call triple zero, you get the first aid kit, you like, you pick up the phone, you're like, Prime Minister, it's happening again, like, we need help, right? And you're like, where are the parents? What's going on? But then you look at where all the parents are sitting at the party and none of them are moving. You're like, what? What's happening? Then one of them goes, um, yeah, no, that one's mine. They're okay. They're just looking for the toy that's directly in front of them, but they've forgotten that it's there. They're fine, right? And the child sees the toy. Mayday is over. They stop crying. It's all good. But, but at other times, you'll be in that lounge room, and the same child will cry, and it sounds exactly the same to you, and you have the same kind of reaction. But then before you can even call Mayday, that same parent is just out the door, right? The child is in their arms. They're comforting them because they're in real need. They're hurt, they've been scared by something, their parent swoops in to the rescue. I don't think I'm just imagining this, right? Like, this, I'm not alone. There's some parents are just so tuned in to the cries of their children. They know how to respond to the, to the cries of their child, at least a good chunk of the time. No one gets it perfect. Uh, but God does. God does. God knows the best way to respond to the cries of His people. At the end of chapter 2 last week, God God heard the cries of his people Israel and we were left last week uh, wondering how he was going to respond to those cries. We were left with this, this anticipation. We asked the question, has God remembered the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob way back at the start in, in, in Genesis chapter 12? Promises that from Abraham a great nation would grow, that he would give them land and a home, that he would bless them. Would he keep these promises? And the answer last week was, yes, he remembers his promises. But there's still a slight problem, isn't there? Uh, like the, 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 the descendants of Abraham, who God made those promises to, uh, they're slaves in Egypt. And we're left with that question, what is God going to do? Uh, well, this morning we read that God appears to Moses who we also read about last week, who is uh, no longer a young man living in Egypt, uh, but is now an 80-year-old man, tending to his flock, to his sheep. His life in Egypt is far in the past. He's now a family man, married to Zipporah and with a son. At the end of last week, we heard that God heard, uh, we read that God heard the cry of the Israelites, that he remembered his covenant with them. And this morning... We've just read about uh, just, just who this God is that remembers his promises. And the line for us to remember this morning is this. It should be on the screen behind me. The line is this. The God of Genesis is the same God of Exodus and is the same God today with the same desire to rescue. The God of Genesis is the same God of Exodus and is the same God today with the same desire to rescue. I think at the, at the moment in our part of the world, there's a general view uh, that God is he's really welcome to stay in Genesis and, and Exodus in the Bible, but, but that he's no longer really relevant, uh, he's no longer really needed, that if he does exist, sure, it's great that he's there, but, but he doesn't really count today. Our passage this morning, it helps us see that, that God is actually needed as much today as he ever was, uh, and helps us see that our God knows how to respond to the greatest need that the world has there are four things in these chapters that help us uh, consider who God is. And the first thing that we see in this story is that God is the God 
uh, who's not distant. He's the God who comes down. It's point one if you have a leaflet in front of you, uh, the God who comes down. Now, I don't know how you'd respond uh, to a talking bush that is on fire, uh, but I reckon I'd have a slightly different response to Moses. Maybe it wasn't the first piece of foliage that Moses has kind of conversed with in the wilderness while he tends his sheep. Maybe it's a common thing for him, but Moses sees a bush that's on fire at Mount Horeb, at the, the mountain of God, and he sees that the flames aren't uh, consuming or burning the bush. The flames don't need any fuel for some reason. They're just burning. And Moses thinks to himself, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And then, then a voice speaks to him uh, from the flames. It says, Moses, Moses. Now, at this point, I definitely would have run the other way. It would have been pretty, pretty terrified, but not, not Moses. I mean, maybe this is the most excitement the guy has had in a while. You know, maybe it's been a dull week at work. Uh, but Moses says, here I am. It's really curious about what's going on here. But Moses' curiosity turns into fear really quickly, doesn't it? And it's not because there's a flaming bush there that's speaking to him. It's when he realises just who it is that he's drawing closer to. Do not come any closer, God says. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Let me read. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, I used to love bonfires as a child. I still love bonfires. Uh, I used to remember my, my family would go up into the hills to where some friends lived and, and there'd be a bonfire. Uh, and mum or dad would warn us not to get too close uh, of course, because you can get burned when you get too close to fire. But we used to love just standing there watching the flames, feeling that warmth and that heat. I imagine many of us have similar memories. But Moses has been told, don't come any closer. Don't get too close. But the comparison isn't, isn't really of someone getting too close to a bonfire. Uh, instead, think of someone drawing too close to the sun. That's, that's kind of the picture that's on display here. That's that's the start of understanding uh, what it means that God is holy. See, Moses knows who God is. And Moses also knows who he is in comparison. And he's really afraid. To read that God is holy. Moses is on holy ground. But Moses is not. See, holy means to be, to be set apart. That's what holy means. It means to be something different. And God is set apart from us in that he is totally, completely perfect. He's perfectly pure. Not even a hint of imperfection marks God's character. And he is perfectly powerful, the creator of the universe. He is completely good, totally absent of evil. And Moses stands before him and he knows, I am not like this God. Moses is not completely good. I wonder what was going through his mind. What would be going through your mind if you were to stand before the creator of the universe who sees all, who sees right into your heart? If I were Moses, I'd be terrified. I know there are things in my heart that I'm ashamed of, things that I've done wrong, things that I have thought that no one else knows about, but that God sees and does know about. And to come before a perfect, pure powerful God in whose presence sin and evil cannot dwell 
Well, it's no wonder that Moses hides his face in fear. Later in Exodus, we, we read that no one may even look upon God's face and live. And now you wonder what Moses thought God was going to say to him at this point. Was he going to say, Moses, I've, I've come to judge you and destroy you because I know you killed that Egyptian 40 years ago. No, God says to Moses, Moses, I have come to rescue my people. We read, it should be on the screen behind me, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Uh, how, how does a holy and unapproachable and perfect God react to the need of his people, to, to imperfect people? He comes to them. He's the God who, who comes down. He doesn't wait for them to figure out how to save themselves. He is the one who will save them. And point two, he is a God who is present. I recently bumped into an old friend of mine from way back in the day, uh, from primary school, and it was amazing to see the change in them that had taken place over time, uh, not just in their physical appearance, but also in their manner. Uh, they were much more at ease than I remember from primary school, uh, and from high school as well. And not only that, uh, they had recently gone through lots of change. They, they have uh, a family, they have another child on the way, they recently moved back from interstate, recently started a new job, uh, but they also weren't as active as they used to be. They'd, they'd been injured in a small accident, they were fine, but they hadn't quite bounced back to what they'd been able to do. My past memory of who they were wasn't the same as the person standing in front of me. Uh, they had changed as a person, they'd, they'd grown up, they were getting older. I wonder if you've bumped into an old friend recently, had a similar experience. Uh, but God appears to Moses, and, and three times over these chapters, three and four, we read God's description of himself to Moses as he tells Moses what he's to say to the Israelites. He, God wants Moses and his people, uh, and us as well today, to understand something. Maybe that stood out to you already as you read, because we read it just a second ago. God says in chapter 3, verse 6, and 3, verse 15, and in chapter 4, verse 5, God says to Moses these words, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Three, three times he kind of uses this phrase, and God, God wants Moses to grasp something. And Moses, well, it seems like he's just, he just doesn't get it, does he? See, the God who is appearing to Moses, he is the same God who appeared to Abraham. The same God who made promises to Abraham is the same God who now stands before Moses, saying that he's going to fulfill those promises. He's going to rescue his people from slavery. He's going to bring them into the land he promised them, land of milk and honey, way back in Genesis, generations and generations before. God, God isn't saying, yeah, remember me from primary school? I'm that guy who was the God of Abraham. Well, I'm that guy who was the God of Abraham. I know it was a while ago. I've got a bit of a pot belly now. The knees aren't as good as they used to be. He's not saying that. Abraham, he doesn't quite get it. Verse 13, Moses says, 
uh, sorry, Abraham, uh, Moses doesn't quite get it. He says to God in verse 13, uh, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, what is his name? Like, what, what am I meant to say? God says, no, 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 it's not, not just the God of your fathers. He says this, he says, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now, these verses have caused a bit of debate over the centuries, especially the I am who I am statement. It could be translated a few different ways. It could also be I am who I will be, or I will be who I will be. A few different things going on there. But, but, but here's what I think is happening. The God's uh, eternal and unchanging nature is on display. God does not have beginning or end. He is the fire that burns without need of fuel, like the flames burning around that bush. He is the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the one from whom all things have their beginning. Only God can say of himself, I am, because he does not change. The God who spoke the universe into being at the start of Genesis, who has moved nations and people who's performed amazing wonders before the descendants of Abraham already, who has been faithful to his promises, this God who speaks to Moses is that same God. And his people are crying out to him, and he has heard that cry, and he isn't going anywhere. God is unchanging. His promises are unchanging. How he said he's going to act toward his people is unchanging. and He's going to keep those promises. Uh, in, in your Bibles, on the screen behind me, the, the capitalised word Lord, uh, it's a translation of, of a four-consonant word, that's Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, in the Bible. Exodus makes it kind of sound like this name wouldn't have been familiar to the Israelites already, uh, but this name is used throughout Genesis. So perhaps it's that Moses wasn't quite familiar with this name. But the translation today is Yahweh. Now, scholars over the centuries agree that it's like, this is likely the way that you say this word, but in our Bibles, in our English translations, when you see Lord, all in capitals, this is referring to the name of God, the name Yahweh. And the name Yahweh, it sounds very similar to the verb I am in Hebrew. They kind of almost sound identical. See, Yahweh is, is the same eternal, unchanging, powerful creator God that he has always been. He is the great I Am. Now, those Israelites in Exodus would have been familiar with the name of God already, with, with Yahweh. This wasn't an introduction. Rather, it's a further revelation and reminder of the character and being of the God they already know. That he is the great I am, without beginning or end, he is unchanging, eternal. And he's saying that he is with Moses and with his people. He's saying that he has shown up. And he wants Moses and his people to understand that he isn't a new God, he isn't a changed God, he is their God. The God of Genesis is the same God of Exodus. And he is with his people, he is with his chosen leader, Moses. But Moses doubts, doesn't he, a bit further back in verse 11. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? 
He doesn't get it. See, this isn't about who Moses is and about him being able to do anything, about him being able to lead God's people out of Egypt. This is about who God is. God says to Moses, I will be with you. It's a call to Moses to trust that it is indeed God who's going to rescue the Israelites. And when the Israelites are back at Mount Horeb to worship God, there will be no room left for doubt as to who it is who has rescued the Israelites, as to who it is who sent Moses to them. He is the God who is present with Moses and his people, the great I Am. And point three is the God who deals with doubt. It kind of seems a bit surprising, doesn't it, that Moses still doubts at the start of chapter four, uh, but God is very patient with him. Moses has, has seen the power and the might of Egypt. He, he lived there for 40 years of his life. He's experienced it firsthand and has only just escaped with his life. Moses grew up in the household of Pharaoh. He knows the strength of that nation, of its leader. He's also been confronted with the plight of the Hebrew people there. He's, he's tried to do something about it already and failed. Now, if he couldn't do anything about it as a strong young man... What does God think he can do about it as an 80-year-old shepherd who's not been there for 40 years? Moses has already tried to talk to the Hebrew people. They rejected him. Why would they accept him or believe him now? And you can kind of start to understand Moses' concern here. But that's the point. Remember, this isn't about what Moses is going to be able to do. It's about who God is revealing himself to be and what he will do. He's the God who comes down and the God who is present with Moses and his people. The same God of Genesis is the same God of Exodus and they can trust him to do what he says. Moses, Moses doubts himself greatly. He doubts the response of God's people to him. But God is the God who deals with doubt. 4 verse 1 we read, What if they don't believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? God responds with three signs that will deal with their doubt. Three signs, a staff turning into a snake, a a hand with leprosy being healed, and water from the Nile being turned into blood. See, God wants Moses and the Israelites to understand something, to understand that God is more powerful than Egypt. And he gives these signs to show it. See, the snake was the symbol of Egyptian power and might and and authority. It represented the gods they followed. And pharaohs would would usually wear the snake symbol on a crown to show this. Now, the Israelites would have been tempted to think that Egypt was mightier than God. But God, in turning the shepherd's staff into a snake and Moses grabbing it by the tail and not getting bitten and dying, it shows that this just isn't the case. God uses a common tool to demonstrate his authority and power. And if he can do that with a stick, imagine what he can do through a person, even as weak as they are, like Moses. And leprosy was, was an incurable disease that was widespread throughout Egypt. No one could do a single thing about this sickness. But God can. God has power even over this. Then the Nile, the water from the Nile, the Nile was recognized as the source of life by the Egyptians. God God turns the water into actual blood. God is the source of life. He is the one with control and power over life. 
He will deal with their doubt, he's saying to Moses. But Moses still doubts himself. He keeps thinking very inwardly. He's not an eloquent man, he says of himself in verse 10. He says he's, he's slow of speech and tongue. He's kind of starting to scrape for excuses, isn't he, a bit? But God, God says, who, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. And you kind of wonder at this point, did God make a mistake in choosing Moses? Like, why wait until he's 80 years old and wandering around the desert? Why, Why not choose to act at the point where Moses was trying to act? Why wait until now? Why send someone with so much doubt in themselves who seems so weak compared to the might of Egypt? It's the way we see God at work over and over again in the Bible. God uses the weak things of the world to demonstrate his great power and who he is. At the start of the year, we were going through 1 Corinthians. and In chapter 1, verse 27, a couple of months ago, we read this. It should be on the screen. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. This is the way God works. He's not reliant on anything. He's the great I am. He through the weak shames the strong. He chose the foolish things of the world, like a cross where death should mean defeat, to shame the wise. Now we're left at the end of Exodus chapter 4 verse 17, asking ourselves whether or not Moses will trust in this God. And we're doubting it. In, in verse um, 13 of chapter 4, Moses just flat out asked God, he just said, send someone else. He's so full of doubt. God, God gets angry at him. He says, I will send your brother Aaron with you to speak for you. But we are left asking the question, will Moses trust who God has revealed himself to be? The God who comes down, who is present and who deals with doubt. It's also a question we need to ask ourselves. We aren't in Egypt, we're in Adelaide. It's a really nice, comfortable city with houses, with comfort at our fingertips. We're not slaves. Uh, But Exodus teaches us that God is the God who desires to rescue. The God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's the God of Moses. The God who is the God of Exodus is the God of the New Testament. The God of the New Testament is the same God today with the same desire to rescue. But the sign that shows that Uh, that this is the case. It's not a staff turning into a snake. It's not a hand being healed. It's not water being turned into blood. The the greatest sign that points to this uh, is a grave that has been empty for 2,000 years. Point three, the God who rescues. Uh, The book of Exodus, it's part of of a larger story. It's right at the start of the Bible. It's a taster for how God would save his people once and for all. And how God would rescue them, not not from slavery to another nation, but from slavery to something much bigger and worse. Slavery to to sin and death. We see this in Jesus. In Jesus, we see the God who came down. We see the God who is present. We see the God who deals with doubt and the God who rescues. God who rescues eternally. The God that is the God of Genesis is the same God of Exodus and is the same God today 
with the same desire to rescue. In uh, in the New Testament, in John chapter 8, Jesus was being challenged by some Jewish teachers. Uh, Jesus had been performing amazing miracles or signs that reveal his glory or who he is. But the Jewish teachers who see and hear about these amazing miracles, they accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. They say, no one should be able to do these things. Jesus tells them, he says, you know, Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing Jesus' day, that Abraham did see it and was glad. And the Jewish teachers, they're outraged at this point. They say, you're not even 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? And Jesus' response, it's, it's incredible. And if it's true, it's, it's life-changing. It changes everything. Jesus, Jesus says to them, Very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. See, in Jesus we see uh, the God who came down. You might remember from our series in Hebrews why the great I am appeared on earth, not in a burning bush this time, but clothed in flesh, fully human, fully God. In chapter 2, verse 14 to 15, we read, Since the children have flesh and blood, that's us, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, in other words, those who have put their trust in Jesus. See, all of us everywhere, whether or not we want to believe it, have said to God at one point or another, I don't, I don't want you, God. I'd prefer to decide how to live for myself. I want to be my own lawmaker. I don't want to listen to you. The result being that we're completely cut off from him. We're people living in rebellion against God. We're a people in slavery. We have chained ourselves to sin and death, awaiting the judgment of a just God, a holy God that we deserve. That's our fate. But we have a God who comes down. Jesus came down to this earth to break the chains of sin and death and he did it by dying on a cross to die the death that we all deserve to face as those who've rejected a holy God, as those who have said to God, we want to live without you and without you as our king. Moses stood in the presence of God and he was afraid, he was terrified. One day we will all stand in the presence of God before his throne. But Jesus died, God, God came down so that when we stand before God, if we have trusted in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, we won't be seen as those who are guilty, as those who deserve his judgment and anger, but we'll be seen as holy, we'll be seen as his children, just as he is holy. Jesus has shattered our chains of sin and death. He has brought us out from slavery to be God's people, descendants of Abraham through faith in Jesus. The thing that deals with our doubts, the grave that has stood empty for 2,000 years and that will never be filled again. An empty grave that shows that Jesus has had victory over sin and death. Death could not hold him. Exodus 4.17 leaves us wondering if Moses will trust in the God who has come down, who is present, who deals with doubt and who rescues. And we are left with the invitation to do the same. 
to trust in the only one who can rescue us from sin and death, or to ignore him. We are each here, all of us, called to to respond to that invitation. And if you doubt, if you have questions, don't leave them behind in the busyness of life, but ask them. Read the account of Jesus' life. Decide for yourself if the tomb is really empty. Because if that tomb isn't empty, if Jesus really did die, if he stayed dead, then we've been wasting our time. It's all a big hoax. But if the tomb is empty, then death has been defeated, sin has been dealt with. And you need to respond to the call to turn to your King Jesus. He's waiting for your answer to his invitation to be rescued. I think the majority of us here have responded to that call. It's why we're a church. It's why we exist today. So what can we take away from these verses? Well, if God is the God of Genesis and is the same God of Exodus and is the same God today, that means that he still has the same desire to rescue and still works powerfully to see that rescue happening. And just as Moses was given the message to tell the Israelites that God has come to rescue, we, we have that same message as well about Jesus. Just as God said to Moses that he would be with him, Jesus' words still ring true for us today. Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. It's easy to fall into a trap of thinking that this world around us uh, has left God behind and that that God is old news, that God should belong there in the past, that that he belongs in Genesis and Exodus. I think that's what a lot of people in our society think about God and, and think about Jesus. What we are reading today about who God is should encourage us, should spur us on to the God of Genesis, the same God of Exodus is the same God today with the same desire to rescue. He isn't old news. It's the greatest news there is. And like a parent who knows how to respond to the true need of their child, God has responded to our greatest need to free us from our slavery to sin and death. And he's done it at the greatest cost imaginable. See, we can trust in this God who has proven himself to us time and time again. We can know that he is greater than Egypt that he is greater than this world and he is more relevant today and needed today than he ever has been. Let's not forget this. I'm going to lead us in talking to this God now. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are as a God who saves, for a God who is not distant from us, for a God who in response to our great need, even when we were living lives in rejection and rebellion against you, You came down to this earth. You died on the cross for our sins so that we might be forgiven. And we thank you for the life we have in your son's name. Thank you that we can call ourselves your children knowing that you love us, that you cherish us. Thank you so much that we have this amazing message of salvation to share with those around us, the people who desperately need to hear and respond to your invitation. We pray you'd help us be a church Uh, who always reminds one another of your goodness, how you have acted towards us in your son Jesus. Always remind one another of our desperate need of you and always respond in praise and thanksgiving for who you are as the God who came down, the God who is present, 
the God who deals with doubt, and the God who rescues. Amen.